Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. International Atomic Energy Agency says its report on Japan's plan to release radioactive wastewater from the Fukushima nuclear power plant is neither a recommendation nor an endorsement. China's Haixin Services PMI eased to 53.9 in June, remaining in expansion territory for six straight months. Large parts of China experienced an intense heat wave that has arrived early. Welcome to World Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, download our podcast by searching World Today. The International Atomic Energy Agency says its report on Japan's plan to release radioactive wastewater from the Fukushima nuclear power plant is neither a recommendation nor an endorsement. IAEA Director General Rafael Grossi says it's up to the Japanese government to make a decision. Grossi says the IAEA will be at the Fukushima site to monitor the discharges if Japan proceeds with this plan. The IAEA will have a continued presence at the site, will continue the review if the plan moves forward, because, as you know, this is a decision by the government. It's not the IAEA decision. It's a decision by the government of Japan. If the government decides to proceed with it, the IAEA will be permanently here, reviewing, monitoring, assessing this activity for decades to come. IAEA's final report concluded that Japan's water discharge plan is consistent with international safety standards. China has expressed its regret over the IAEA's report, saying it does not contain the opinions of all experts involved in the evaluation process. The foreign ministry says the report is not a green light for Japan to dump the water into the ocean. Meanwhile, at the UN Human Rights Council, China said Japan's plan transfers the risk of nuclear pollution to the entire human race, which may result in major troubles in the global marine environment and for public health. Now, for more on this, we're joined by Aina Tangan, senior fellow at Taihe Institute. Thank you, Aina, for talking to us again. It's good to have you back on the show. My pleasure, Lee Quinn. Now, Aina, uh, it's it's interesting, the words that has been chosen by the IAEA, neither a recommendation nor an endorsement. I mean, how, how should we understand these remarks? This is an abdication. I mean, they're, this is the International Atomic Energy Association. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're the ones who are supposed to be saying something. This is like standing by and watching a firing squad and saying, well, I'm just observing. Uh, you know, it, they are the ones that everybody is supposed to trust, uh, and despite this lukewarm idea that, well, it's somehow within international standards, it's nonsense. Mm-hmm. The fact is that the, the radio, there are 40 different radioactive isotopes that are being released, and one of them is tritium, and they just don't know much about it. Mm-hmm. There haven't been studies on it, yet they say, well, it, tritium is everywhere. We shouldn't worry about it but it's not released in concentrations like this on a regular basis. Mm. They said, well, maybe other countries release it or, you know, nothing has happened, but things have happened. 40% of the children around Fukushima have uh, uh, problems with their thyroid, uh, precancerous situations with their thyroid. Mm. So, I mean, it is having an effect. The fact that the IAEA is turning a blind eye to this is very concerning. Uh, on Tuesday, the IAEA concluded that Japan's plan were consistent with international safety standards and they would have a here negligible radiological impact to people and the environment. I mean, what is negligible radioactive <laughs> radiological impact? What does that even mean? Well, it doesn't mean anything. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's weasel words. It's uh, words that are being expressed to say, well, we don't have any responsibility for this. You, mm-hmm. you, you heard a statement. We're going to be here at, at the site for years to come. I, I, I don't understand it. There was a false net narrative, mm-hmm. right? a false choice set up that it's either uh, retain the water and build more tanks at the nuclear uh, facility at Fukushima or release. 
That's not, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. There have been other proposals. The, the whole treatment program that was chosen was chosen based on it was a Japanese com- a company that could provide the services, not the best option. Mm-hmm. Now they have other options, including taking the residue and putting it in concrete and rendering it basically inert so that it could be used both at the Fukushima factory, on roads, et cetera, but it wouldn't have any uh, impact. That, right. I know. Why did, why did Japan resort to this matter, to, to this method anyways? Yeah, cost. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and there's a credibility gap here. Uh, both the Japanese government and TEPCO have admitted to lying about uh, the results. Uh, they have been uh, not releasing information. TEPCO finally admitted in 2013 they had been releasing water with, you know, and while they were saying they weren't. Mm. And it's all been motivated by money, money and incompetence by the bureaucracy. Uh, Japan, the Japanese government has a tremendous amount of liability here. Mm. And who, who is suffering? It's the neighbors, the fishermen there. Yeah. They don't seem to care much about what's happening to their own people who've been victimized be- once mm. by the incompetence of putting it. The, the IAE report said that TEPCO and the uh, Japanese government had direct responsibility for the accident because mm. they, they didn't bother to take precautions. Mm. Now they're victimizing the same people they victimized, 110,000 people who had to be evacuated, the fishermen who depend on, on their living there. They basically waited to try to get back in, and now they're going to be victimized again. Who's going to buy, buy their fish now? Mm. Well, um, as you mentioned, um, the IEA, I mean, it's interesting that the IEA gives approval to uh, some sort of approval, let's uh, put it in that way, to Japan's plan. But the IEA chief is still going to South Korea and New Zealand to ease the worries of the two Pacific countries. I mean, what are their countries? What are their worries, really, of South Korea and New Zealand? Well, the worries are that, you know, 40% of the children around Fukushima are experiencing, uh, you know, fibroid conditions related to uh, radiation. They don't want their people to be affected by this. It wasn't their responsibility to safeguard this um, nuclear facility. That was the Japanese government and TEPCO, the uh, private entity that uh, that was in charge of this facility. Now, all of a sudden, it's everybody else's problem because China because Japan wants to take the cheapest option Mm. and they want to just be done with this. But, you know, it's not going to be done. There's going to be more wastewater that's accumulated as they uh, Mm. slowly, you know, 2030, dismantle this facility. Mm. And during that time, there's going to be more wastewater. So this is not an isolated incident. No, it's not. This is part of them, them trying to pass this off as somehow normal when they have not done any investigation on what the further effects of tritium and these four or other other radioisotopes will have mm. on people around the world. Well, right after the IAEA report, uh, China Atomic Energy Authority um, urged the IAEA to establish effective third-party labs with participation from Japan's neighboring countries so that Japan's activities can be monitored. So, Aina, what kind of facilities uh, do you think these labs should be? I mean, if, well, if the plan is going to be preceded anyways. Well, I mean, Japan's not going to agree to it. They have not agreed to anything except the IAEA. Mm. Uh, they have not. They've only released information when it was they were forced to. Uh, there's been, and that's why there's this trust gap, and that's why it's very difficult for people to see to proceed uh, with the Japanese in charge. So, if there is in fact a lab, it has to be an international one. It has to involve, involve everybody: uh, China, South Korea, ASEAN, um, the Pacific Islands, even the U.S. Uh, there has to be, um, you know, very transparent scientists, not mm. politicians, running this, so that they can actually do it because. It's important to gather the data if, in fact, the strontium and these other 40, uh, active, act, mm. 40 different radioactive isotopes are dangerous. They need to know that now so that in future they can create guidance uh, procedures for dealing with disasters because disasters will occur. The question is, are you prepared for them and do you have the right uh, processes to mm. safeguard people? 
I think the neighboring countries mainly want,、um, you know, the right to be informed and to be given transparent information on this. Well,、uh, China as well as、uh, some、uh, neighboring countries have been calling for international attention、uh, on this issue. And I, I mean, I know. Do you think there are enough international attention on this issue? And if not, why is that the case? Well, I mean, the, the, the U.S. is obviously back in Japan in a very lukewarm way. They're not, you know, saying, "Oh, this is the greatest thing." They're just saying, "Well, it's okay. What else can you do?" And let, once, once again, it's this false choice. It's just, "Oh, do you release or you don't release?" That that isn't the choice. It's whether you treat it more,、mm-hmm. uh, and that would cost more money. So the U.S. is basically backing Japan's play to cut the costs. And you know, I don't know what the quid pro quo is, but obviously there's a lot of issues between the U.S. and Japan, and it would be very easily for the U.S. government to say, "Oh well, we don't care."、Mm-hmm. But you know, I think people in the West Coast of the United States will care because when this thing happened, they started measuring uh, elevated uh, radioactivity washing up onto the beaches、mm-hmm. of the West Coast of America.、Uh, at, Canada,、mm. Mexico, and other parts of South America. So this is a global problem, and you know, people, politicians, just like、uh, COVID, they're、mm. they're playing politics with science, and this、mm. is wrong.、Mm. Indeed,、um, well, that's、uh, certainly. This issue, I think, will continue to linger in the East Pacific、uh, region and among Japan's neighboring countries for. Days, I mean, if not years,、uh, to come, and it certainly, you know, creates a lot of anxiety and also worry in this region. But、uh, thank you, Ina, for talking to us. That was Ina Tangen, senior fellow at Taihe Institute. Coming up, we'll take a look at the latest figures on the Chinese economy. You're listening to World Today. We'll be right back. Turning the tables. Beijing appears set to play its trump card in the trade war Washington is leading against Chinese tech, setting to restrict exports of two essential rare metals for chip making. What impact will the Chinese move have? How long can its effect sustain? And how many more aces does Beijing have up sleeve? Get the answers to these questions and more on this week's Chat Lounge podcast and CGTN Radio. Welcome back. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. China's Hixing Services PMI eased to 53.9 in June, remaining in expansion territory for the sixth straight month. Meanwhile, Hixing Manufacturing PMI, which tracks tr- factory activities among mid-small-sized companies, came in at 50.5 in the same month. What's the state of the Chinese economy now? What are the signals behind these indicators, and what will be the key drivers for the country's economic growth in the second half of the year? For more on these questions and more, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Dr. Yao Shujie, Changkang Professor of Economics at Chongqing University. So, Professor Yao, the latest figure shows that the Caixin Services PMI in June was fifty-three point nine. What's your explanation of this figure? Anything above fifty indicates that the,、um, the non-manufacturing、uh, service sector is actually on the expansion territory. But I look at the previous figure; this number is slightly lower than the previous figure. So it means that the growth of the service sector may、uh, indicate some sort of、uh, slowing down, although it will be still a main driver. Of the country's economic growth for this particular month, and the Taiwan manufacturing PMI is also 50.5 last month, and the figure slightly lower than the previous months. But、uh, this marked the second consecutive month of growth in the manufacturing activity. So, what does it tell us? And in terms of economic growth of China, what do you think are key drivers for the growth in the second half of this year? Yeah, the manufacturing PMI is just、uh, above the fifty percent、uh, benchmark, which is still in the expansionary、uh, territory I just mentioned. But it is just on the margin. It means that the manufacturing sector may grow not really strongly、uh, in this month, and probably it remains a significant challenge for the second half of of the year. This comes to answering your second question. What will be the main driver for economic growth in the second half of the year? 
as China aims to sustain a steady uh, economic growth of something like six, uh, sorry, 5% on an annual basis. So uh, export, uh, manufacturing, uh, services, and investment, uh, all these are, are the important driver of economic growth. Uh, so China have to do everything possible uh, mm. to make sure that all the area would have entered the, the, the significant policy hit, uh, territory for expansion. And right now, the domestic market of China is expecting some more stimulus policies on macro level. So what do you think those policies could be? And do you think we will see the rise of those index, a key index, in the next quarter? Yeah, the, the key policy that the central government has been mainly through the monetary uh, system by reducing the interest rate, uh, by providing uh, you know, the financial uh, credit to the to the enterprises, particularly the small and medium-sized enterprises or the private firms. And also there are some sort of uh, facilitation to uh, have a sales in the countryside, particularly the new electrical uh, vehicles in the countryside to stimulate the potential demand in the vast territory of, of, of the country. There are comprehensive policies. Uh, we don't expect a, a huge injection of cash into the system, but there will be some sort of legislation in terms of credit and also interest rate and facilitation for some particular industrial sector and service sector for the entire economy throughout the country. And China is expected to achieve this year's economic growth target of around 5%, with the growth in the second quarter to surpass that in the first quarter. This is according to Chinese Premier. He said this at the Summer Davos Forum recently. And from your perspective, what are the most important parts to reach that target? And where should be the focus of China's economic efforts in the next stage? The, the second quarter is quite clear. It's already over. So we are waiting for the figure to come out. And uh, most people expect that the second quarter growth figure will be much better than the first quarter, which recorded a 4.5% growth in the first three months of this year. So um, the, for the second quarter to, to pull the first quarter up, it may uh, require something like 6% or plus. But many people predict that it could be more than 6%. Uh, for the second quarter. Now, the remaining challenge is the third and the fourth quarter, which usually uh, carry a, a heavier weight in terms of uh, GDP in the second half of the year than the first half. So mm. it means that the second half will really have to achieve uh, minimum 5%, and it will better uh, slightly higher than uh, 5% which is quite a significant challenge given uh, the external uh, problem and also the adjustment of the internal industrial sector. Mm. Externally, I think there's a slowdown in the global economy due to the high inflation, high interest rate uh, led by the United States and many countries in the, in, in the major industrial economy. So China really have to focus on the domestic uh, economy to uh, make sure that domestic economic growth would be sustained at a reasonable level, uh, typically uh, 5 or five percent or more than 5% in the second half of the year. Mm. So there is a comprehensive policy issue uh, that the, the, the State Council is implementing. I think the, one of the biggest challenges is probably still the, the housing industry, the real estate industry which affected many downstream and upstream industries at the moment. And the second challenge is the investment. Uh, although the big enterprises, they are investing uh, more strongly, but the private enterprises, particularly the small and medium-sized enterprises, they are still in the recovery uh, stage of uh, you know, investment. So uh, I think more effort have to put into those areas. Mm. And so what's your view on the digital economy's role as a driver in China's uh, further growth? The digital economy is a new technology-driven economy. It is now not only prevailing in China, but it is also an important component of economic growth and social development in the rest of the world. 
China happened to be a front runner in terms of the digital economy alongside with the United States. China and the U.S. are the major uh, leading economy in terms of uh, digital economy development. On the one hand, the digital economy is able to increase the efficiency of the existing industry. On the other hand, digital economy itself created a, a new uh, phenomenon of economic growth itself, like creating new demand and also enriching uh, the, the consumer uh, experiences. So uh, digital economy is very important for China. It, it has been growing very fast, but also it would uh, become uh, more and more important. Mm. And China is now promoting the deep integration of the digital economy with the real economy to guide the digital transformation of small and medium-sized enterprises or firms. So how will that support the economic update? Well, everything, uh, the traditional uh, industry, manufacturing, uh, and now the services and even agriculture, uh, tourism, uh, everything you mentioned, we, we cannot live without the digital economy. And uh, digital economy indeed, although it is invisible, but it is actually embedded in every aspect of life and production and business, you know, in the society. So um, there, are, there are two potential uh, opportunities. One potential opportunity is technological progress to make sure the total factory production uh, you know, efficiency would be increased. And secondly, uh, as China has entered the high, a relatively high income stage, I think further development would not depend on the traditional extensive consumption of raw materials and labor and capital. It will be more and more depending on new technology to improve the, the, the factory production efficiency. Mm. And also, Professor Yao, from the perspective of entrepreneurs, what does the escalating competition between China and the U.S. mean for them? And do you think such ties between the world's largest two economies may reshape the mindset of entrepreneurs in the long run? Yeah, entrepreneurs um, is, is the, basically the, the key player in terms of innovation, production, and also uh, economic and, and social progress. So entrepreneurs have uh, faced both opportunities and challenges. The challenge is that because China is getting stronger and the United States, um, you know, feel that there's a fairly eminent competition for the dominance in the global economy. And, and this would have a positive effect in terms of driving entrepreneurs to become more innovative. Uh, to get adopt more technology and create more technology so that they can become more competitive. You know, on the other hand, because of the direct competition between the United States and China, that means there will be in some area, uh, there will be some sort of uh, blockage or even, uh, you know, difficulty in terms of cooperation, in terms of uh, putting more effort and cost to create the same kinds of technology. So uh, we'll see this situation uh, in the new century and in the future. So we, we should consider as a challenge as well as opportunity. That was Dr. Yao Shujie, Changkang Professor of Economics at Chongqing University, speaking with my colleague Zhao Yang. Coming up next, the latest with the Black Sea Grain Deal. You're listening to World Today. For further discussions, you can follow us on Twitter at CGTN Radio. We'll be right back after a short break. Chief Economist of Hang Seng Bank, China. The World Today is a real fun program. You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. So, friends around the world, hope you can join us. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. 
Russia has restated a demand for its state agricultural bank to be reconnected to the global SWIFT payment system to avert the collapse of the Black Sea grain deal. With less than two weeks remaining until expiry of the deal, Moscow said there had been no progress on any of its key demands, including the banking issue. Russia says the severing of the bank's access to SWIFT is one of the obstacles facing its exports of food and fertilizer, and that it cannot keep renewing the Black Sea deal unless those issues have been addressed. Now, for more, we're joined by Dr. Alexei Muraviev, associate professor of national security and strategic studies at Curtin University in Australia. Thank you, Professor Muraviev, for talking to us. It's good to have you back on the show, Professor. First up, some basics. So, how how does the current Black Sea grain deal facilitate grain trade in the region? Well, it it does contribute to the overall uh, global export of, of of grain and and wheat. Given the fact that Ukraine uh, remains listed as one of the world's uh, principal exporters of key agricultural produce, so uh, by allowing the the export of um, uh, agricultural products from Ukraine, namely, uh, obviously, grain and wheat. Uh, Russia, uh, obviously, uh, facilitates the, 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 the shipment of um, much-needed uh, uh, grain and, and, and wheat resources uh, to a number of overseas clients. So the, in theory, a lot of this needs to go to, uh, to the countries that uh, are agricultural dependent or impoverished nations, including in parts of Asia, in Africa. Mm. But uh, Moscow has been claiming for some time that a lot of these exports that are going out of Ukraine uh, end up being uh, exported into the European nations, meaning that they're not reaching their regional destinations. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly the argument from Russia, because uh, I have some figures here. Russia says under the current deal, more than 80% of the grain going out of Odessa go to developed economies, and poor countries, gets on, countries get only about 2.6%. Um, so that means the deal is not fulfilling its purpose. And we did hear from media reports earlier that, you know, um, Ukraine grain exports to Poland are actually hurting the farmers in in Poland. I mean, Professor, how should we really understand, you know, the logic and also these statistics? Uh, look, I mean, uh, mm. there are a couple of issues here. Is, mm. um, uh, one is, uh, uh, if, if, you, if you take Moscow's point of view, mm. uh, the deal allows Ukraine to continue to generate uh, export earnings, right, and 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 certainly factoring in the fact that Ukraine is at war with Russia, it, it allows the Ukraine to effectively support the war effort by uh, acquiring capabilities, by paying some, for, for some of the of, of of the weapons that it it is it continues to receive from the West. Uh, there is another element attached to that that. The so-called maritime corridors that mm-hmm. uh, being used for for the shipment of this produce, because since the since the invasion of Ukraine, Russia imposed naval blockade on 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 on, on all of Ukrainian ports, and as a result of the deal, some of these ports were were deblocked. But that uh, maritime routes that allow for the shipment of those mm. um, agricultural cargo. Well, according again to the Russians, they've been used uh, by the Ukrainian forces to attack Russia's targets uh, by means of uh, um, uh, seaborne unmanned uh, vehicles or by by other means. So the Russians obviously look at it uh, from the, from the viewpoint that they're not getting anything uh, from the deal that the shipment of fertilizers, exports of fertilizers are not mm. progressing, mm. that uh, Russia cannot um, acquire spare parts for their agricultural machinery, the, the transactions have been blocked because uh, Russia's agricultural bank hasn't been reconnected to the Swiss system. And on the other hand, the Russian suspicions that, um, uh, uh, that Ukraine may be receiving military cargo uh, um, uh, via those maritime corridors mm-hmm. uh, when ships are, um, are that are designed to take 
agricultural experts out of Ukrainian ports are coming into port, and also that Ukraine has been using those corridors, again, if we had to believe what the Russians are saying, mm. uh, to attack Russia's uh, naval targets. In addition to mm. everything you also have been referring to, like uh, problems for for agricultural producers in Europe, which have yeah. uh, been confronted to mm. effectively contest with cheap produce that is coming into from their Ukraine. countries from Ukraine. Mm. Certainly, looks, it's a very complicated issue. But, um, Professor, how do you think Russia's main demand here, uh, that is a uh, state uh, agricultural bank to be reconnected to the SWIFT system, how do you think that will be received? Look, I mean, I, I don't think it will it will go anywhere, and I don't think the Russians are prepared to, to prolong the deal because last time the Russians expanded mm. uh, the prolongation of the deal was driven predominantly by the political reasons because uh, the Russians were considering uh, the election cycle in, in Turkey mm. and, 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 and certainly by uh, allowing the extension of the deal by a couple of months. I think Russia's President Vladimir Putin was offering a, a gesture of goodwill to Turkish President Erdogan, Erdogan mm. who was one of the key proponents for, for, for the agreement, the, the so-called Black Sea Wheat Agreement, because um, uh, that certainly places Turkey, places Turkey in, a, in a really powerful uh, negotiations position, but mm-hmm. also positions Turkey as an important transit mm-hmm. point. So by extending the deal, Putin effectively supported Erdogan's re-election, but obviously since this now been done and dusted, mm. um, and, uh, and, and, and since the Russians are not getting their way, uh, and, and on the other hand, Putin has been increasingly criticized at home for allowing this deal to happen, which many Russian hardliners and patriots believe to be uh, done at the expense of Russia's national interest. Well, it seems that the Kremlin may now be reconsidering its approach and do something with respect to not only terminating the agreement, but also appeasing to the hardcore electorate at home, also bearing in mind that uh, next year Russia will be facing presidential elections, so Putin obviously wants to start building up his re-election mm-hmm. chances. And Professor, are you saying that, you know, there's only an, uh, a dead end to the current green deal? Under current circumstances, I cannot possibly see that the Russians mm-hmm. uh, would be prepared to extend uh, the, the agreement, because otherwise the Kremlin will be facing increasing criticism and pressure mm. at home, also because they're not getting anything in, 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 in return. return. So I mm. think, um, and, and given, given the current circumstances, particularly after the failed coup attempt, Putin is unlikely to entertain or, would, or try to, to play the so-called good, goodwill card, because it will start backfiring on him at home, and I think that would be certainly one of his key considerations behind making the final decision. Mm. Having said that, you never know, something may be <laughs> right. um, ag- agreed upon at the very last moment. Mm. Well, so many players uh, for this, um, but uh, you know, green export is certainly an uh, important issue for uh, you know, poorer countries who really depend on uh, agricultural uh, imports. Um, but as you said, things are rather fluid, um, so we'll keep an eye on this. Thank you. That was Dr. Alexei Muraviev, Associate Professor of National Security and Strategic Studies at Curtin University in Australia. This is World Today. We'll be right back. As one of CGTN Radio's most popular programs, World Today provides listeners with a strong mix of international news and business. It delivers in-depth analysis of current affairs and one-on-one interviews, and you need the stories behind the news, not just what's happening, but why. Welcome back. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. U.S. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona has announced new plans for student loan forgiveness. This came shortly after U.S. Supreme Court struck down the Biden administration's $400 billion plan to cancel or reduce federal student loans. Cardona said the administration will aim to provide debt relief under the Higher Education Act of 1965. 
The Education Department is also starting a temporary 12-month on-ramp repayment program. It allows borrowers to avoid default if they can't make a payment once repayment begins in October. A new income-driven repayment plan will also be initiated. Now, for more, we're joined by Edward Lehman. He is legal affairs commentator and managing director of Lehman Lee and Chu Law Firm. Thank you, Dr. Lehman, for talking to us. It's good to have you back on the show. Great to be here. Now, Dr. Um, Biden is having a lot of headache, I guess, from the U.S. Supreme Court. So how do you see the decision by the Supreme Court? What factors have led to this decision? Well, I mean, there's no doubt it's uh, it's a challenge. I mean, America has a system of, you know, we just passed the 4th of July, which is our Independence Day. Mm-hmm. And America has what's in place, a system of checks and balances. The executive uh, branch, which is led by Mr. Biden and the Department of Education is a part of that, his cabinet, made one decision, which was student loan forgiveness. Then we've got the uh, the Supreme Court. Now, the Supreme Court is a check or balance. It's kind of infallible because it's final. It's not final because it's infallible. Mm-hmm. And so they've made a decision, the Supreme Court, that's highly significant and has far-reaching implications. The, the court's conservative majority in a six to three ruling struck down President Biden's student loan forgiveness program. And the decision was primarily to, uh, driven by the interpretation of a federal law from 2003, mm. which the court concluded did not grant the authority for the Secretary of Education, remember that's over there in the executive department, to forgive student loan debt. So Chief Justice Roberts, who's head of the Supreme Court, uh, mm. wrote the majority opinion. He emphasized the importance of clear congressional authorization. So the Congress, the third prong here we're talking about, for the executive branch to make decisions regarding matters of immense economic or political significance. And certainly this is hugely economic and obviously political. The court invoked major questions doctrine, Mm. which highlights the staggering economic and political implications of the student loan forgiveness program. Mm. Well, then, doctor, um, in reality, how do you think, um, how does this uh, Supreme Court decision will, you know, how will it affect the life of, uh, you know, the students who are debt laden? Yeah, I mean, it uh, obviously it certainly impacts things because, I mean, what we've got now in the United States is we have folks that are coming out of school who are kind of indentured uh, servants, mm-hmm. if you will. We're talking about I mean, hundreds got, of thousands of dollars, right? Exactly. No, mm-hmm. and especially if you go on for, for undergraduate, then you've got graduate degree programs. And so uh, the Supreme Court decision has a direct and profound impact on the lives of students and the borrowers. And it will go on not just today, but I mean, it will go on far into the future. So President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan was aimed to provide relief by wiping up to $20,000 in student debt for eligible borrowers. Unfortunately, the plan has been invalidated and students and graduates who are uh, hopeful for debt relief face a significant setback. And many of these individuals are relying on this relief to alleviate the burden to not be, like I said, these indentured uh, servants when they get out of. It used to be when you bought your home, you'd actually have enough debt and you'd have to continue to to bear that debt. But now when you're getting out of school, and now they'll continue to bear the weight of that debt. And the court's ruling emphasizes the legal limitations and challenges surrounding student loan forgiveness initiatives, leaving borrowers in a very difficult and uncertain position. And I think it's difficult enough with the with the uh, recession, I mean, the inflation and with a potential re- recession looming. Uh, so th- these are all very big challenges for young folks. Mm, right. Well, um, as I said, uh, you know, the Department of Education is having, thinking about new ways. Uh, um, the ones that I talk about uh, is one is 12 months on ramp repayment program, which allows uh, mm-hmm. them to avoid default. And also another is um, income driven repayment plan. I mean, how do you see these plans? How will they how do you see their feasibility on one thing? And the other thing is, will will they be challenged again? Yeah, I mean, I think that the the new plan announced by the U.S. Department of Education in response to the Supreme Court decision, like you said, is this temporary on ramp quote-unquote, on-ramp period for borrowers. Uh, This period grants relief to borrowers by not considering them in default or late for missed payments for one year, Mm. starting on October the 1st. While this provides some immediate assistance, it falls short of addressing the broader issue for student loan forgiveness. I mean, the feasibility 
of the new plan hinges on various factors, including securing congressional support Mm -hmm. and navigating potential legal challenges. It's important to recognize that significant uh, changes in in student loan forgiveness programs require explicit authorization from Congress. Remember the three parties, their executive, Mm -hmm. uh, Supreme Court, uh, and and, uh, and Congress. Given the further contentious nature and what's going on in Congress, as we all see today with the legal battles, the success of this new approach in providing long-term relief for borrowers, the students, remains uncertain. So the U.S. Department of Education will face, in my opinion, substantial hurdles in implementing and sustaining a comprehensive solution for this student loan crisis. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit of a mess. And then um, politically, um, Doctor, how do you think, how big a political setback is this for Biden? Who is seeking yeah, re-election? I mean, I mean, really? No kidding. So mm-hmm. we're we're in the election season, which is uh, a thing to watch. The Supreme Court decision is undeniably a major political setback for President Biden. He's got his hands full with a whole range of issues, and this is yet another one. So during the 2020 campaign, he made a firm promise to forgive at least ten thousand dollars right. of federal student loan debts, and this harkens back to to uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. Read my lips; I will not increase taxes. And now uh, that happened, and then he was voted out of office. And so with Mr. Biden, he faces the same kind of thing. And the court's invalidation of his student forgiveness loan plan will directly undermine, in my opinion, his ability to fulfill that promise. And the setback can have implication on his political standing, particularly among millions of uh, Americans who are burdened by the student loan debts, which go on for decades. I mean, while he, I think Mr. and Mrs. Obama, for example, had just gotten out of student loan debt very <laughs> really? close to the time that they were, yeah, by the time they were uh, getting into the White House. Really? Uh, so, yeah, I didn't no, know exactly. that. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's strange, uh-huh. but true. While he was expressed disappointment with the court's decision, I mean, Biden has announced mm-hmm. in his administration. But then how could they, I mean, if they already have student loans and they got married, how could they afford a home if they still have, you know, hundreds of thousands of student loans on their, on their, on their, you know, shoulders? Right. No, no, that's exactly the problem is that Mm -hmm. we, people are debt on top of debt. And I mean, there are ways to get student loans, but I mean, once they got out of school, both Mr. Well, Mrs. Obama was working for a firm called Cillian Austin, for example. Mm -hmm. She was making a, a decent amount of money. Um, but still, you know, the, un, un, enough that she had to, you know, service that loan debt as well as, you know, if they were going to take on uh, another, you know, a home loan. Mm. You know, Mr. Obama at the time was a community activist and wasn't making a great deal of money. So even those folks who are highly uh, educated, privileged, had a super hard time. Mm. Yeah, and privileged. I mean, with regards to the opportunities that they had. We're still, it was very, very tight for them. And, and then look at them. I mean, obviously, they're not doing too shabby now. Mm. But back then, <laughs> it was quite tight and touch and go. So uh, those are, you know, some big superstars. Uh, how is it for the average person? So I think Mr. Biden has made that promise, can't keep the promise, not his fault, but can't keep the promise. And mm. uh, it's going to be difficult for him in, in the challenge in the run up to 2024, like I said, for a whole bunch of reasons. But this just doesn't mm. make it easier for him. Well, thank you, Doctor, for you know a very detailed explanation and for a lot of information on this talk. That was Edward Lehman. He is legal affairs commentator and managing director of Lehman Lee and Xu Law Firm. You're listening to World Today. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Einar Tangen, a political and economic analyst and senior fellow at the independent Taiher Institute. World Today is news without the hype and business commentary that is informed and up-to-date, presenting the facts and asking incisive questions. So join us if you are someone who needs to know what is happening in China as it is happening. Welcome back. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. In China, large parts of the country are suffering from an intense heat wave that has arrived early. No relief is in sight as meteorological officials warn of more severe weather in the coming weeks. Sun Ye reports. China has just experienced its second hottest month of June ever recorded. It was also a rare dry month with 15% less precipitation than average. The province of Yunnan has seen this past spring season as its driest ever. 
China's National Meteorological Center say large stretches in the country from the east of Inner Mongolia to northern China, including Hebei Province, would have to continue to cope with the aridity. Producers of corn and soybeans in these areas should prepare for worse conditions. This, as more unrelenting heat is predicted for the month of July. This June has witnessed an increased frequency of heat waves, reaching extreme levels of heat. As for July, our forecast indicates that the majority of China will experience higher than average temperature spikes. It could be particularly severe for northern China and the areas along the Yellow River and Huai River region. These areas are advised to pay close attention to energy supply and power dispatch. The country's first regional heat waves this year had arrived in early June, more than two weeks earlier than average. The country has also issued some 80% more heat alerts in the past month, and such alerts are expected to keep on coming. That was Sun Ye reporting. Now, for more on this, we're joined by Wu Changhua, CEO of Beijing Future Innovation Center and Executive Director of Professional Association for China's Environment. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, no, first, uh, first up, uh, I hope you're having enough uh, air conditioning, staying indoors as much as you can uh, on this, um, you know, heat wave. But uh, how how would you explain the continuous, um, you know, unusual heat wave that we're experiencing in northern China this year? Well, uh, thank you for the question. And uh, actually, I'm now in Germany. I on a business trip, so I sort of escaped <laughs> from the heat wave, this round of the heat wave in Beijing. Right. Uh, but I did experience a few days of the temperature above 41 degrees, which is about 104 uh, degrees Fahrenheit. Mm. And... Uh, uh, staying indoors and, uh, you know, prevent uh, uh, dehydration definitely a part of the action sequences on a daily basis. So back to your question. And uh, uh, the International Meteorological Organization of UN just announced uh, the arrival of uh, the El- climate heating uh, El Nino event. Mm. And uh, meaning, uh, so we're definitely already uh, in this period of uh, this cycle uh, of heating, and mm. uh, we can expect more high temperature heat waves, uh, extreme weather events, and China definitely is experiencing that now. And uh, after, you know, we, we've seen before, actually, and if you look at the southern part of the U.S., the Central America, northern part of Africa, mm. uh, they had their uh, cycle runs, and now, of course, the heat waves move to uh, China and Antarctic at this moment. Uh, which is devastating because, uh, you know, some scientists call this a double whammy uh, because of the, the arrival of the El Nino events. Uh, and in the meantime, on top of the increase of global uh, climate heating, uh, you know, uh, uh, driven by human-induced uh, carbon emissions there. Uh, so the two factors coming together and mm. really make it to maybe the worst of the worst at this moment. So we just have to somehow bear with it, live through it. Mm. But then, um, Chang talking about uh, hot weather, it's not only, you know, makes, uh, it does not only make people uncomfortable, it does have uh, natural and economic consequences, right? Um, help us understand yeah. some of these consequences. Well, uh, there are a few ways or dimensions to look at it. Some people declare that this is a death, death sentence to mm. people and the ecosystem, meaning uh, lives of human lives as well as the local lives in nature uh, couldn't really tolerate the heat wave. And uh, so in many cases, you know, we're going to see a loss of human lives and uh, uh, even the sickness, increasing sickness, uh, uh, you know, people, particularly those people with some pre-health conditions, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like seniors, older people and the kids. Uh, so we need to be really, really careful. Uh, Economic-wide, actually, and uh, because heat waves, we're mostly worried about water, right? And mm. uh, uh, so definitely water scarcity, particularly in the northern part of China, which has already been heavily water stressed. Right. And so water definitely is a big issue that's impacting all possible, imaginable sort of the economic factors there. Uh, agriculture uh, mm. is a big thing uh, because a lot of the crops wouldn't be able to survive. Mm. Uh, energy sector is another one. Uh, I think the last year we experienced a similar situation, and because heat waves, somehow we started to see dropping of the uh, water levels in the three gorges rivers, 
Mm. And uh, as a consequence, actually, and uh, Eastern part of China, that Shanghai wouldn't be able to get uh, the hydropower as much as they would like to. So we had some sort of you know fighting or controversial between uh, provinces right. at that. So mm. in, you know, overall, it's impact life and livelihoods as well as many economic factors that factors you could imagine. Mm. Well, we have one more minute before we let you go, but.、Uh, What do you think are some of the things that people can do in their daily life, you know, to combat、um, this、uh, heat wave and protect themselves? Yeah, I think on one side, as I mentioned early on,、uh, stay cool、mm. and、uh, <laughs> prevent dehydration,、uh, particularly taking care of people, you know, your families with the pre health conditions, older seniors and the kids.、Uh, in the meantime,、uh, don't forget to take actions and.、Uh, Sort of unlock your garbage and、uh, you know、mm. save water,、uh, save energy as much as you could,、uh, at least to help as、uh, we mitigate the climate change at this moment.、Mm. Well, yeah, as you say, I mean we are still in the beginning of July, and certainly the heat wave will continue for some time.、Uh, but、uh, Changhua, as you said, do stay cool, stay inside as much as possible, and we're grateful for you to join us、uh, for this、uh, very important topic that affects everybody in their daily lives. Thank you. That was Wu Changhua. CEO, Beijing Future Innovation Center, and Executive Director of Professional Association for China's Environment. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. A quick recap of the headlines: The International Atomic Energy Agency says its report on Japan's plan to release radioactive wastewater from the Fukushima nuclear power plant is neither a recommendation nor an endorsement. China's Haixin Services PMI eased to 53.9 in June, remaining in expansion territory for the sixth straight month. Large parts of China experience an intense heat wave that has arrived early. Well, to listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching "World Today." For further discussions, you can follow us on Twitter at CGTN Radio. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Thank you for staying with us. Bye for now.